We are the forgotten generation, a misplaced slice of the 20th century when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. We lived under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation, playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by New Wave, Imperfect Punk Rock, and John Hughes movies. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. They call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines, because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. Jeff, it is it is Christmas uh, 2019. It is Christmas 2019, Steve. And what do you so so you know this is uh, into the vertical blank Christmas number two. Uh, anything interesting you're asking for for Christmas this year, or you you hope to get? I have I have put on my list a very interesting thing. So uh, um, I do like the Legends flashback, but I don't know if I'm going to get it. Um, I haven't. I asked. I may have asked that for you or Jeannie, but I haven't. I, I, I think if you need to release it, so I can ask it for Jeannie. But what I what I have on there's a a couple of tabletop with a screen that's almost like a Vetrex but smaller retro systems out there. They're retro pies, but they have a screen built in. I like those. I like not, the bigger ones. I just want one that ha- that is MAME compatible or something because the ones no, I've this seen is one. Like, this is one. It's this like is one. only like you get eight game, no, eight Namco games about. or something, and none so of them is, are Bosconian, and that, it just pisses so, me off. So. There is an actual one that I put on my list that I'm going to find that has a 3.4 inch TFT screen and 3000 classic games on it. It comes with an arcade controller and six buttons on what looks like, and it comes with a, the screen is, is in landscape, not portrait. So it's made for, you know, TV games, for instance, but it also comes with two controllers. So you could plug it in and play like two people. You don't need the the control that comes with it, but it really is a four inch screen. Now that's, that's still relatively small, but you can put it on any tabletop and play a game. You don't have to have it. That's not bad. What's it called? It's, this is called a borrow routine. Uh, it sounds it sounds like a, I know you know yeah it's, unofficial. it's shining it's unofficial yeah Steve it's unofficial retro game console classic retro video game portable console sixteen gig t three three point four inch TFT screen three thousand classic games and then it, it, there's a lot of information about it um and what I love how well, these things come out and, and then you'll see like online that. people go. That's just a Raspberry Pi with a case on it. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it is. I don't want to spend yep, the time it building is. it. It so is. Who cares? Right. Yeah, as long as you know that, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I know. I know exactly. And so I put that on my list. I don't know if I'll get it or not, because. but that's the one thing I'm, I'm looking at. I want to get one of those because I know I can put it on a thing and just play it anywhere if I wanted to. Well, I, I don't have, really like I, I have this. I think you hinted to me that you're yeah. going to get me an Atari STE computer yeah it's, it's not really a hint i mean i'm gonna get you a target I'm pretty, I think, <laughs> let me say i'm pretty excited 
The only problem is you said it doesn't have a mouse, and I haven't have yet to find my I, mouse in the I, garage. I have um, I have taken care of that situation, but you're not going to get it till Christmas. Oh, okay. This is the end of the vertical blank. It's the end of the season two of the vertical blank, and we're going to talk about Christmas. It's the end of all the vertical blank. Who knows? Well, the vertical blank. I've seen other people, such as Wade, who does inverse Tasky. Uh huh. He started, you know, did inverse Tasky for a long time, and in his feed, then he put ST stuff, and then in his feed, he put. Now he's done stuff on the portfolio, so he just starts putting stuff in his feed that kind of because he cuts inverse Tasky, he's he just stopped took a break from it was all the Atari, the productivity stuff of the eight bits. So I see our feed as being able to contain all manner of things that have to do with the vertical blank, including stories and things where we want to do them, but also new things we want to do, such as talk about programming on the systems that we did mm. actually program on the systems. I don't know, Jeff. I think that's one way to do it. I think there's other well, ways the thing to is, handle it. Our oh, stuff we could just really... go out with a bang, just say, you know what, drop the mic and say, we're blowing this thing up and never returning too. No. And then you could make your own little feed with all your own little Atari ST stuff in it. I don't want to make another feed. We're not big enough to have another feed. No, we're, we're not big enough to even have uh, this feed, let's be it. honest with you. We're not even big enough for one feed. Yeah. I just want to put – so, like, it's still into the vertical blank. Whatever goes up as feed is well, still yeah, into the is. vertical blank. Yeah, I see. I have some ideas about next season, though. So we'll talk about that. Season anyway, three. I was just saying this could be the end. Probably not, but it could, could be. be. Any one of them could have been the end. But I mean, this yeah, is the, like every anyone. time you have a final episode of a season, it could be the last episode. It could be the last episode, right? And exactly. I, I'll tell you, I I sort of designed this one as like the sum total of everything we talked about in the vertical blank, or at least I wrote a story that's kind of like that because it's Christmas, and this is about right. the best f-ing Christmas ever, or the, be- is the best. Is that what you're going to call it? Well, it's the best blankety blank Christmas ever. Um, so tell me, Jeff, what do you think is the best f-ing Christmas ever? When we were kids, okay, when so we were kids, I can't really count. When we were kids, this stuff. This is to me the best Christmas ever. I mean, we every kids. Christmas. Okay, let me put it. Every Christmas after we got the Atari Twenty Six Hundred was the best Christmas ever. There was a Christmas before that. And we've talked about it. When we got the Evil Knievel toys, that up until that point, I thought was the best Christmas ever. What about Christmas nineteen eighty when we got the the Death Star playset? That was pretty cool. That was cool. But that, but that was before Atari, right? That was a year before we got Atari. Um, that was cool, but I think that I didn't we really play with the, the Death Star playset at that time. I think we were a little old for playing with dolls, although we love playing with with um a doll. I like calling them dolls. I'll just make everybody dolls mad. Dolls is fine. Right? That's what Eric Barr's um, dad used to call them, dolls. Which I, which I, I'm and not he was sure right. He was being masculating or uh, emasculating when he said that. Well, the thing is, he was um he, he that's why Eric never had action figures because he called them dolls. dolls. He didn't want his kid playing with dolls. Yeah, that was that was it. Eric can tell us better if he ever. What was going to happen if Eric played with dolls? Like what? Like what was was that going to change him somehow? Um, let me put it this way: he, whatever whatever might have happened between Eric's sister and his parents, um, the dad didn't want that to happen with Eric. And and sure. um, same thing with with our sisters and dad. And and that's just I think dads I think just had this thing. A common thing back then. And, and it was just an older generation because his sister was at least ten years older than him. And we had a sister that was eight years older or whatever, and he just as dads Nine want their nine, years, nine old. years older. Dad just dads just wanted their their sons to turn out to be what they wanted, and you know didn't want. Well, any, what, I don't I don't think you know this, but Eric's Eric Barr's dad figures prominently in the story I just wrote. That's pretty awesome. I didn't know that, yeah. but that's great. We'll I can't wait to hear it and then talk about it afterwards. But yeah, not, not um, that anyone who listens to this even knows who Eric Barr's dad is, but. 
he's he's a, um, he was an interesting he, character in our lives. He, was a, he he definitely provided us with a lot of entertainment, electronic wise. That's right. He gave it to Eric. Don't ruin my story. So so, anyway. so best Christmas ever for me just completely would have been the run up to Christmas nineteen eighty three, the Christmas evening and uh, the next two weeks. Right. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is, let's play that story right now, and then we can talk about it afterwards. The best Christmas ever. Part one. The first time I touched a computer, I was 10 years old in 1980 at my friend Eric's house who lived down the street. Eric's dad was a manager at Hughes Aircraft, the same place my dad was a draftsman. They knew each other, but there was an obvious white-collar, blue-collar divide between them. My dad said Eric's dad was kicked upstairs, which I think implied he was incompetent, so they promoted him. It always sounded like sour grapes on my dad's part to me. My dad was into dirt bikes and fixing cars. Eric's dad was into technology, sci-fi, and building his wife a kiln and his son a two-story clubhouse. My dad showed me how to fix a roof, do a brake job on a Datsun 710, shoot guns, and how to set off fireworks without blowing my hand off. He never built my mom anything I can recall, but he did once hang a tire from a tree so we could swing on it. My dad was into the Civil War, cowboys, ghost towns, and discovering the past. Eric's dad showed me the future. I can't imagine why now, but Eric's dad let my brother and I, a grimy set of twins with rat's nest hair and threadbare clothes, touch his shiny, brand new Apple II computer. He let us play games like Ceiling Zero and Aztec, but he did something more. It was Eric's dad who showed us how to enter and execute our first real, honest-to-God, Apple basic code executing on its MOS Technology 6502-based processor. It went something like this. 10, print, hello world. 20, go to 10. When the program ran, the rippling green phosphorescent text scrolled on the black background of the Apple II monitor. It went on and on forever, and it appeared to be the stuff of gods to me. By typing the code Eric's dad showed us, then typing run and hitting the enter key, we had essentially created what appeared to be life itself. And just like those same gods, Eric's dad showed us how to smite that life down with a simple Control-C key press. I was gobsmacked. I was hooked. Like a young blue whale that breached the water surface for the first time, my eyes instantly opened to a world I had no concept of even existing before. A world I never wanted to leave, but a world I rarely got the chance to enter. You're going to end up on Skid Row. My dad was serious. My brother and I were 11 years old, listening to my dad as we drove the Datsun 710 station wagon to a Motel 6 in Escondido, California. This was a weekend trip, the type of which we'd taken for the past few years. It constituted our family summer vacations in totality. If you don't find a decent job, you're going to be living on the streets. It was a scary thought living on the streets. The hot, sticky vinyl of the Datsun seats that I hated so much felt like a dream compared to how I imagined sleeping in a concrete sidewalk. In the summer of 1981, my brother and I were video game obsessed twins who lived in a household that avoided or could not afford most modern technology and conveniences. My dad's job at Hughes Aircraft was shaky and we made ends meet based on how many overtime hours he was awarded there. This meant most luxuries were off the table. 
It was lucky then that we both loved arcade games that we could play for 25 cents apiece. However, we also coveted the Atari VCS, a machine on which we could play unlimited video games, but was so far not within our grasp. When we had money, we spent most of it at the arcade or in shop fronts, playing coin-operated video games whenever possible. Most of the time, those games are made by one company, the aforementioned VCS creator, Atari. When we were not in the arcade, we were on the lookout for any kind of video games, favoring the Atari VCS system set up in the TV departments of various stores like Fedmart, Gemco, and Sears. When we found one, we could play a few rounds before the salesman ran us off. On a trip like this one to San Diego, we would hopefully find an arcade at our miniature golf course and beg our dad to take us there. He would usually oblige. You can't make the same mistakes I made, my dad continued. We listened to his conversations enough to know exactly what he was talking about. Our father had a degree in fine art from Syracuse University, and after spending 25 years trying to land acting roles in TV, he now held a job doing drafting work for an aerospace company. If anyone did, my dad knew the value of not wasting a college education, but he constantly complained about his job and warned us about getting into a bad work situation. Most of your work lives will be spent dealing with boredom, he told us. He hated his work. That much was obvious. It certainly wasn't what he dreamed of doing when he imagined himself in the French Foreign Legion as a boy or acted on the show Captain Zero in the 50s. His warning always stayed with me. Would I be able to find a job I loved, not be bored, and avoid ending up on Skid Row? It was a lot for an 11-year-old to contemplate. Not too long after we returned from our weekend away, my brother and I stumbled across a computer store named HW Computers next to a laundromat my mom was trying out for the first time. HW was part of a chain established among the first wave of computer stores. The shop was a mishmash of t-shirted techies, business-suited sales guys, IBM clones, Apple IIs, and walls filled with elaborately shaped boxes of software and games. When we saw the Atari logo on the front of the store, we begged our mom to take us there while the clothes were in the washer. Our mission that day, as it had been for a long time, was to look for Atari VCS games to see if we could play them. And we did find some VCS games, but they were unplayable in a glass case. But it was still exciting to find them. However, we also found something better, something amazing to me at the time. In another glass case at HW Computers, we saw a display of one of the most beautiful creations I'd ever witnessed. An Atari 800 computer and 810 disk drive. Atari made computers, I said. I had no idea, my brother replied. As the computer store salesman explained the machines and how much more powerful they were than the VCS and how much cheaper they were than the Apple II, I was dumbfounded by their beauty. The sleek curves of the Atari computers reminded me of the cars from the movie American Graffiti. I felt a charge in my gut when I looked at them, as if they were something I needed to possess as soon as possible. I'm not sure why exactly the name Atari attached to a computer made these seem more accessible than Apple, but it just did. I already had an innate love for anything Atari because I loved playing the Asteroids coin-op so much, and I'd wanted an Atari VCS for so long after falling in love with Breakout. Maybe, in my head, expensive Apple computers were for kids of engineering managers and math geniuses like Eric, while Atari was made for kids who might one day end up on Skid Row. I really can't explain it other than the name Atari attached to a computer made my brother and I both think one day it would be possible to own one. We left the store that day with a catalog listing all the Atari computer software available at HW Computers and a sneaking suspicion it would not be the last time we crossed the path of Atari computing machines. 
Admittingly, a big draw I had towards computers was the fact that they could play the in-depth and exciting games we saw in the store and described in the software catalog. After using Eric's Apple II, I was enamored by the process of booting the machine, inserting a disk in the floppy drive, typing a command, and running a game. The sound of the whirring disk and the audible clicks as each sector of bits was loaded from the floppy drive was thrilling. But equally thrilling was the basic programming language Eric's dad had showed us how to use. With seemingly the same commands and interface used to play games, a person could write these magical lines of text capable of making games as well. The difference between playing software and creating software appeared to be a mere matter of context, a magical flick of the wrist that could take a person from shooting aliens to breathing life into them. All those years we spent trying to make homemade pinball games in the garage with mechanical parts and lights that my dad pilfered from work, designing our own driveway sports, or hacking our analog toys into interactive experience were leading to something, and a programmable home computer felt like maybe an answer. Furthermore, if my brother and I could only get our hands on an Atari computer and learn to program one, then there was a good chance we would one day get a job making video games. At least that's how we saw it. And if we did learn to program and make video games, my dad would never have to worry about us ending up on Skid Row. I would never have to worry about ending up on Skid Row. That was the dream anyway. But dreams... By my parents' example, dreams are not always an achievable reality. Both of them lived with the constant knowledge that their own ambitions of becoming professional actors would never come to fruition. We only heard snatches of their lives before us kids came along, but it all sounded so fascinating. They met by chance in San Francisco in the 50s and acted together in plays in the San Francisco State Little Theater. After my dad got roles on a couple TV shows, they chased their dream to New York to study the method under Paul Mann. After graduating from acting school, they moved back to 1950s Hollywood to chase the TV dream once more. Then, nothing. It all evaporated. To make ends meet, my dad took a job drawing for an aerospace company, and my mom worked as a typist for Rand Corporation. When the first baby came, not soon after, the acting was put on hold indefinitely. My dad found things to keep himself busy, but my mom... She never really did. She just sat at one side of the kitchen table, playing solitaire for hours on end. The same version of Klondike over and over. Klondike from my entire childhood and beyond. Her dreams died hard. So to me, having a big dream for your life just seemed like a terrible idea. You'd end up on Skid Row, in a job you hate, or sitting by yourself wondering what could have been. I never really imagined being anything beyond my then current position, a kid who loved Star Wars and video games. But this Atari computer thing, it seemed like it was a dream worth having. It was short term. It was achievable. Maybe. Sure, computers, even cheap Atari computers, were expensive. But there had to be a way to make it happen. Part 2 for most of the 1970s, my dad rode desert motocross as his pastime and hobby. He joined a club for desert motocross racers named the Dusters and spent many of his free weekends in the Mojave Desert. We accompanied him a couple times, but there was little for us to do. I always secretly wanted to be a Duster. They had their own custom jerseys and they gave out trophies to their members. My dad proudly displayed his club awarded first placed aged 50 plus trophy next to his bed. Next to it was an action photo of him riding in the desert. When an accident forced my dad to quit motocross racing, he picked up a new hobby, collecting military artifacts specifically forge caps from the American Civil War. It wasn't exactly a new hobby, as he'd been interested in them since the 1950s when he saw one in a store for $5 and passed it up. 
He kicked himself ever since. The forged caps from the Americans of the war look very much like the hats worn by the French Foreign Legion, and my dad connected the two from his own childhood aspirations to run away and fight foreign wars. In a matter of months, he purchased several hats, either from the local gun shows or from Shotgun News Magazine, a publication for gun enthusiasts that doubled as classified ads for military memorabilia. He even wore one of the hats as he coached our soccer team, sticking out like a sore thumb among the young beach dads in our hometown. A couple months after seeing the Atari 800 in the glass case, the first issue of Electronic Games magazine was published, and it made its way into the hands of my brother and I. Even though we still had computers in our minds, the Atari VCS was never forgotten, and the first issue of Electronic Games brought it right back to the forefront. We pored over the entire magazine for weeks, geeking out at the images and descriptions of the cartridges coming out for the Atari VCS. The visceral nature of the magazine made the prospect of getting an Atari VCS feel more real than ever. We talked about the VCS constantly and made it obvious to our parents that we could no longer wait. So when Christmas 1981 rolled by, somehow they managed to get one for us. To this day, I still don't understand how. Civil War forage caps cost several hundred dollars at the time. So maybe my mom convinced my dad to postpone the purchase of a hat or two to get us an Atari? More likely though, it was probably made possible by my mom who had recently rejoined the workforce as a near minimum wage teacher's aide. No matter how we got the VCS, it was amazing to have. We were finally Atari owners and not just Atari players. And for a while, the dreams of owning an Atari computer were pushed aside as we went full bore into playing the VCS and getting all the new games reviewed and advertised in Electronic Games Magazine. This was our true video game golden age. We spent all of our money on Electronic Games Magazine, arcade tokens, and Atari cartridges. We really tried to make the VCS the best it could be, to embrace it as the future. We subscribed to Atari Age Magazine and acquired copies of Night Driver, Missile Command, and Adventure for our 12th birthday. However, the excitement short-lived. It might have been amazing to have an Atari VCS, but it wasn't necessarily amazing to play an Atari VCS. While we were wowed by games like Asteroids and Missile Command, we were left disappointed by many others. The blockiness of adventure and the sheer hollowness of Pac-Man, for example, made us take pause. When the next generation ColecoVision and Atari 5200 were announced in Electronic Games Magazine in 1982, the VCS felt old and tired. What was cool when I was in third grade in 1978 felt outdated and underpowered in an era of MTV and Tron. We watched our friends get these newer machines while we were stuck with a device designed when Nixon jokes still echoed on late night TV. We so desperately wanted to be on the cutting edge of technology, but in reality, our family situation meant we would always be coming from behind, trying to catch up to the modern world. Computers, on the other hand, still seem new and exciting. When I wasn't playing the VCS, I was usually in my room, lying on my bed, reading the computer playland section of electronic games, or paging through that Atari software catalog from HW Computers. As the months and years wore on, the games in that catalog took on a mythic quality. Their tantalizing names and descriptions felt so much deeper and more exciting than the mostly one-note gameplay of the Atari VCS. Energy Czar, Eastern Front, Temple of Abshai, Rescue at Regal, Caverns of Mars, Scott Adams Adventures, and Zork, just to name a few. All those games sounded like the deep and engrossing experiences I wanted from the VCS, but were so hard to find. It was around that time that somehow, someway, using our twin powers, my brother and I decided in unspoken terms that we both wanted, no needed, to somehow, someway, rekindle the dream and get an Atari computer in any way possible. 
So over the next couple of years, we schemed and scouted all avenues to obtain what was fast becoming the pinnacle of our childhood dreams. Knowing how expensive computers were at the time, the salesman had told us the Atari 100 and disk drive would set us back at least $1,000. We knew we were going to have to be mighty creative in our endeavors if we were ever going to see our plans come to fruition. Sure, my dad didn't want us to end up on Skid Row, but he also didn't want to end up on Skid Row himself trying to buy a computer. To be successful, we'd have to present the computer as a device so necessary for our collective futures that there was no way he could pass up the opportunity to get one for us. The first thing we did was educate ourselves. For a couple kids who did fine in school, but would rather read Encyclopedia Brown, Three Investigators, and Choose Your Own Adventure books, this was quite a startling change of direction. We checked out books on basic programming from the library and taught ourselves the main tenets of the basic language from the seeds Mr. Barth planted years before. Line numbers, loops, go-tos, go-subs, plot and color statements. Soon we are fashioning our own analog programs on notebook and graph paper, designing games and graphics and anything else we could think of. We did these things out in the open where our parents could see our work. Sitting across the table from my mom while she played another losing game of one-person cards, we copied code from books and discussed out loud how we might create the coding ideas in our head. Among the supplies my dad brought home from his work at Hughes Aircraft were a few pages of eighth-inch graph paper. To us, the boxes on that graph paper looked just like the pixels on an 8-bit Apple II screen. We asked to borrow some of the paper, and the next day he brought us a whole stack he borrowed from the Hughes Aircraft Supply Closet. Nobody was using it, he told us. On that paper, we designed the spaceships and characters we planned to use in the games we wrote for our future Atari computer. We even inserted plot statements directly on the graph paper, so when we eventually got a computer, we could easily replicate the graphics we designed. We had no way to test out our ideas, but that didn't stop us from imagining the possibilities of what a computer could do. Along the way, the unspoken agreement among my brother and I evolved. We didn't just want to get a computer to program video games. We both hoped this would all one day lead to our ultimate goal, working at Atari making video games because they were hands down the world's greatest video game company. Skid Row, it was nowhere in the picture. Time continued to march on and as with BMX bikes, skateboards, and video game systems before them, we again watched the years pass by as our friends in the neighborhood all obtained the same things we wanted so badly but seemed so far out of our reach. First, Eric's dad upgraded to an Apple IIe. Then Wesley's dad bought him an IBM PC compatible. Next, Kenny's mom, who was a single parent, managed to get him an Atari 400, followed by Scott's parents, who scored him a TRS-80. I was happy for those guys, but frustrated too. Just seemed like the more we wanted something, the better chance someone else would get it. The reality was, being familiar with how to program a computer did not mean we would ever own one. If our plan was going to work, we would have to start really working on getting a machine into our house. Our first solid chance came in the summer of 1982. That year, McDonald's had an Atari video game scratch and win contest, giving away thousands of Atari products, including Atari 5200s and Atari computers. We resigned ourselves that summer to win that contest by any means necessary. In between stints at the arcade that offered eight tokens for a dollar, we'd walk up to the local McDonald's looking for discarded game cards on the ground, 
on tables, and on floors inside the restaurant. When that left us empty-handed, we braved discarded Big Macs and soggy fries as we searched through the trash cans in and outside the restaurant. We did this for a few hours a day, a few days a week, for at least half the summer. To this day, the scent of lettuce and tomatoes mixed with special sauce together conjure up memories of picking through the garbage in me. Lukewarm McDonald's garbage. Out of the dozens of game cards we eventually found, none of them were Atari winners. The best we did was win fries and a Coke or two, but we were almost too disgusted by McDonald's food trash by that time to eat any of it. As the summer passed, so did those Atari computer dreams. And by the time we were back in school in the seventh grade, the idea was pushed back, but not forgotten. That year, I quit Spanish class after one trimester and found myself working in the school computer lab. For an hour a day, I was allowed to explore a room filled with Apple IIe computers and pretty much do whatever I wanted. It was the next big revelation. I played expansive computer games, programmed in basic, drew pictures with the Koala art tablet, and wrote poems with Bank Street Writer. It became obvious to me in that lab that computers were not just another unattainable thing I was obsessed with, but they were the future. Not just my future, not just the future Eric's dad had given us a glimpse of, but the future for everyone. This realization only made my desire for a computer burn even more brightly. If only I could get my hands on one in my own room and learn how to program it, I'd be set for life. But Christmas 1982 came and went. We received a couple great Atari VCS games, River Raid and Vanguard. But much of our household, especially my dad, was distracted by moving my grandmother out of her house and into a retirement home. Early in 1983, my brother and I managed to save up and purchase a Starpath supercharger for our Atari VCS. The supercharger added about 6K of RAM to the VCS and loaded games from cassettes like many home computers did. This meant the VCS could play more elaborate games loaded from tape in multiple segments. The games were also cheap, running about 15 bucks each. For a hot minute, I believe that the supercharger might be a reasonable stand-in for an actual computer. The games it played, especially the first console RPG Dragon Stomper and the 3D maze game Escape from the Mindmaster, were mind-blowingly great. However, that idea was short-lived. We still could not program the supercharger, and very soon after we purchased it, the company who made it, Arcadia Starpath, went out of business. In fact, Atari was losing money hand over fist in 1983 and felt like the entire video game industry was going to crumble. We needed to figure out how to get a computer fast or there was a good chance we'd never get a chance to work making video games at all. Part 3 by mid-1983, my brother and I had been obsessing about owning a computer for almost three years. I don't know if it's a scientific fact that three years in kid time is at least 30 years in adult time, but it sure felt like it. Bill Bryson said it most eloquently in his memoir, The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, like this. Time moves more slowly in kid world. It goes on for decades when measured in adult terms. It is adult life that is over in a twinkling. It was about that time that Atari announced a brand new line of low-cost computers. The XL line consisted of the Atari 600 and the 800 XL, replacements for the Atari 400 and 800 respectively. Both had sleek new designs. Straight edges replaced the space-age curves of the older machines, with 64K RAM and BASIC built in. In mid-1983, our dad was working overtime at Hughes Aircraft with a new computerized CAD CAM system. Without any real acknowledgement of the computer obsession we've been trying to show him for years, he started coming home and bestowing upon us his wisdom about the virtues of this new computer system and how computers were going to change everything. He sounded a bit like Eric's dad did a few years back. 
This was new. As well, with his overtime work, he seemed to have a bit more cash even if we never saw much of it. My dad had been going full bore into his new hobby, collecting Civil War headgear. We had attended several gun shows, helping with his search, and he was obsessive about the classified ads and shotgun news, searching them for hours, looking for hats, buttons, belts, ammo holders, and any other period items from the 1860s that would satisfy his collecting hobby. His bookshelves were filled with antique books that described Civil War uniforms in detail and first-hand accounts written by the soldiers themselves. He also imagined himself in a business making reproduction Civil War kepis and bummers, the names of his favorite forage caps, and his walls were filled with drawings and designs of the different parts of hats and how he might go about recreating them. All these antiques he bought ate heavily into the household income. Even though my mom took as many hours at her teacher's aid job as she could, we were still left buying most of our clothes at discount shops and our shoes at the local swap meet. This made it very hard for us to fit in with the expensive surf clothes wearing kids at junior high. We were nerds, but we did even realize it. We just knew we wanted a computer. My brother and I decided it was time to finally tell our dad about the Atari we've been coveting. With my dad openly talking about computers now, it felt like we had some common ground to start a discussion. Unconsciously, I believe, our goal was to appeal to a sense of his own obsessions. We needed to try to make our desire for an Atari computer look and feel like his own hobbies. Those hobbies appeared legitimate because they had dedicated magazines, clubs, books, trade shows where enthusiasts could gather and explore together. I still recall us taking our stacks of books, magazines, catalogs, and notebooks filled with handwritten basic code into his room. He was on his bed, as usual, watching the black and white TV he repaired after going to night school. This is when my mom still slept there. Her things still occupied half the room. Her hairbrush and mirror still on their shared dresser, next to the giant mirror with the enormous crack in the upper left corner. Hey, Pop, one of us said. Can we show you something? We didn't just show him something. We showed him everything especially focused on the magazines and their pictures and ads for Atari, which I only now realize was a parallel to how he focused on shotgun news for his hobby. We pointed out the new lower-cost Atari computers that had been announced that year. He watched us as we paged with the books we checked out, the programs we had written, and displayed our code and pixel drawings, plus the catalogs and magazines we had about Atari. Our dad was blown away by our enthusiasm, but we were still not sure Atari was a company that was serious about making computers. The one thing he did do, at least for a short time, was stop talking about Skid Row. It was a small thing, but just noticeable enough to encourage us to keep trying for an Atari 800XL. So we stepped up the pressure another notch. We had to somehow get him to understand that not only did Atari make the best computers in the world and that they played the best games, but just having one could be our ticket to never worrying about having a job or being laid off, something he worried about constantly. Soon after, we begged our dad to take us to a computer show at the LA Convention Center. We saw an ad for in the LA Times, and we imagined it would be like the CES or Comdex shows we read about in magazines. It was also the closest cousin to the gun shows to which we accompanied my dad when he was looking for Civil War artifacts. By taking us to those gun shows, we opened our eyes to the fact that these types of events existed. We planned to explore the Atari booth at the show and make sure he knew that Atari made serious computers and were a serious player in the industry and not just the video game system we had hooked up to the TV. We didn't know much about computer shows at the time, and it turned out that the one we chose was serious all right, and it covered IBM PCs only. Atari was nowhere to be found. I still recall my brother and I walking through the tables on the show floor, desperate to see any Atari machines anywhere so my dad could see that they were serious and real, but none were found. My dad was livid. He spent money on tickets, parking, and gas, and we came away with nothing. It was a huge blow to our dream, and it was the first time I realized that while I might have high regard for Atari computers, there was a whole industry that didn't even acknowledge their existence. Maybe we were wrong about Atari. 
It was near this time that my dad came home from work completely frustrated. He relayed a story to us about his computer at work and how it had turned on him. Whatever system he was using apparently did not have a backspace, which is either an actual backspace or his way of describing undo. When I'm drafting by hand, I can just erase with a pencil, but with this f***ing computer, I have to start all over again. I hate these f***ing computers. It was yet another blow to our efforts. We thought our dad had embraced the future, but it looked like he was quickly slipping into the past. We needed to find something else to send things in the other direction. And in the summer of 1983, we found it. Space, S-B-A-C-E, the South Bay Atari Computer Enthusiast, was an Atari computer club that held monthly meetings a few miles from our house. Jeff and I found about them in an Atari computer magazine, Antiker Analog, both of which we bought regularly. We showed our dad the date and time for the meeting, and he agreed to take us. I was nervous about going to the space meeting. I felt like a kid entering an adult world. The last time we accompanied my dad to an adult affair was when he took up acting again as a hobby a few years prior. He took us down to the stage where they were preparing sets and he gave us jobs to help. My brother and I were on our hands and knees scraping old paint off the floor when an angry woman in some kind of charge saw us and yelled, Who are these kids and why are they here? The pit of my stomach filled with bile when I heard this. I froze and could not look up. My ears turned red. My eyes started getting wet. My dad quickly came over, apologized to the woman, and took us home. I never found out why we posed such an affront to her, but I never forgot it. We had invaded an adult world that did not want us. I certainly hoped that the space meeting would not turn out like that. We paid our dues and sat down in the folding chairs in a room about 50 feet long and 25 feet wide. We were about 15 minutes early, so I watched as the other attendees arrived. I was relieved to see that most of them looked a lot like my dad. Still, I tried to make myself small and invisible in the chair, just in case. When one of the arrivals stopped next to us and turned to my dad, I was scared crapless about what he was going to say. Were we going to get kicked out of there, too? The man leaned over to my dad, pointed to us, and said, I see you got a couple Atari computer fans there. Welcome. My dad nodded, and the man nodded back. And that was that. We were good. The rest of the meeting was breathtakingly brilliant. There was talk of Atari BBS systems coming online, where to buy Atari computers, demos of games and programs written by members of much more. All of these adults and a few kids talking about Atari computers as if they were the most important computers in the world. When it was over, I'm not sure how my dad felt about the meeting. He got up and immediately went to the back of the room. I thought he was trying to leave, but instead he headed straight to the membership table and bought us each a year's membership to space. Sure, it wasn't like being a member of a cool 70s desert motocross racing club named the Dusters, but it was the closest we were ever going to get. On the way home, it felt like my dad was just as excited about his computers as we were. Our joyful conversation in the cab of the four-door international pickup truck traveled from computers to our futures as adults. With computers and soccer, you could be set for life, I recall him telling us, your mind and body fulfilled. We swept him up in our computer dream, telling him about how we could grow up to be programmers, a sellable skill, and not be bored with work because computers were cool and not end up on Skid Row because we would get paid. He seemed to buy every word. By the time we made it home, he was sold. That night, he joined us on our quest to make the Atari computer dream a reality. And even better, he wanted to do it by Christmas 1983. I felt then that the upcoming Christmas was gonna be the best Christmas ever. In the months that led up to Christmas 1983, we made attack plans on how we would make the Atari computer plan a success. 
We listed all the things we would need. A shiny new Atari 800XL, a 1050 disk drive, a box of 10 blank disks, and a color TV for output on a proper computer desk in our room. My dad took care of the color TV by setting us up with a refurbished one he repaired from someone else's garbage. Jeff and I love the all-wood computer desk that Eric's dad had set up for his Apple IIe, and the giant fancy office desk Wesley had in his room for his IBM PC. We showed my dad pictures of computer desks in the Sears catalog, but he had his own ideas. He did the best he could for us given his other priorities. He found an old discarded desk on the side of the road and took it home with him one night, hauling several pieces in the back of his pickup truck. He salvaged the metal desk drawers and added a tabletop from some discarded boards in the garage. Then he fashions a set of legs with two by fours for the side opposite the drawers to keep it upright. It was not pretty, but it certainly would not stand out in our house filled mostly with other discards, side of the road specials, makeshift beds, etc. In fact, it was right at home. Now we just needed to find a computer that could sit on top of it. Throughout the fall, we kept looking for the best prices on Atari machines. Every week, we check ads in the LA Times and take a trip to Fedco and Gemco to see if shipments of 800XLs had arrived. Our fellow members of space relayed their own stories, and at one of the meetings in late 1983, we found out why. One of the speakers informed the attendees that Atari was having some kind of production problems and their computers were slow to arrive in the USA. What we didn't know was that in 1983, Atari had cut costs and moved their manufacturing to Asia. They also got a new CEO who halted all production for a short time so we could make sense of the mess the previous CEO left behind. Both of, the, both of these events left the store shelves bare of Atari computer products in the run-up to Christmas. It couldn't have come at a worse time. Even though my dad was ready to make a purchase, simply finding an Atari 800XL computer anywhere became a huge problem. As the weeks before Christmas turned into mere days, the outlook became bleaker and bleaker. There were none to be found in any local stores. On Christmas Eve, we still had no computer purchased, but we took one last trip to Fedco just for the hell of it. It was Saturday, December 24th, and it just so happened to be the same day that Fedco finally received their first shipment of Atari 800XL computers. The store shelves were packed to the raffers. We were amazed and dazed. Our dream of almost four years was coming true, and on Christmas Eve, my brother and I ran around the aisles gleefully picking out everything we needed. I still recall the joy we felt when we finally saw the boxes for the 800XL and the 1050 disk drive. It felt like a Christmas miracle. I still recall what happened next, as if in slow motion. The movement of my dad, the expression on his face, the surprise of what he was seeing. I can see it now and will never forget it because it was not joy he was expressing. My father was not enthusiastic about finding Atari computers at all. He looked quite shocked, actually, that the store had anything in stock, almost like he planned to not find anything there. As we dashed around the store, he finally got up the nerve to give us the news he'd been holding back. Boys, I can't buy this Atari 800XL this year. I didn't get enough overtime pay to afford one. We'll have to do it next year. And that was that. In a word, my brother and I were devastated. We went home and sulked. Christmas was ruined and there was nothing we could do. I wish our dad had never latched onto our plan as it only raised our hopes to dash them in the worst way possible. Why had he just gone through the motions of pretending to want this for us? I'd never been more angry at him. Like every year, we went to Catholic Church with my mom that Christmas Eve, and as we exited to the verses of joy to the world, the feeling of Christmases of old swept over me. By the time we got home, I felt warm and happy. It was nice to be at our house, and nice to know that Christmas was just a few hours away. My granny and sisters were home when we got back, and we soon got caught up in the evening. 
It was Christmas by God and would still be fun as it always was. My mom, my wonderful mom, could not help but make it nice. Her little traditions were the heart and soul of our Christmas anyway. There would be no computer, but there would be Christmas stockings filled with thoughtful goodies from her paycheck. There would be biscuits for breakfast and turkey for dinner. And since the holiday fell on a Sunday that year, we still have two full weeks to play with whatever we received. Even without a computer coming, we still might get some Atari VCS or Vectric games, and that couldn't be all bad. Maybe a ColecoVision was in our future. Sleep that night, though, was tough. It was not the usual Christmas Eve jitters from when I was little but something more. All the pent-up energy and feelings from years of hoping, planning, and scheming to get that Atari computer were poured into twisted dreams about the Atari Christmas gone awry. Asleep, awake, asleep, awake, with dreams in between about what could have been. More thoughts came. Darker thoughts. I was angry when I thought about my dad's hobbies. There were still four motorcycles in the garage that he didn't ride anymore. His room was stuffed with artifacts that he had purchased to feed his Civil War habit. Yet our family still lived mostly makeshift. We rode makeshift bikes. We slept on makeshift beds. We wore makeshift clothes. Had a makeshift TV set that sat on an empty makeshift computer desk. The plumbing, electricity, windows, floors, and paint in our house were bandaged with makeshift patches but never really fixed. My dad's hobbies were always fully funded though. Why couldn't he just put aside some of that stuff just once, just this once, to help us achieve this Atari computer dream? His hobbies seemed to be his priority. When would we be his priority? Even when he coached our soccer team, it felt sometimes like the strategy of putting together the lineups was more important to him than spending time with my brother and I. Like, he'd still be doing it even if we never showed up anymore for practice or games. To say I was never sure my dad loved me was a pretty accurate statement. It was always a mystery to us just how he felt about anything or anyone. He neither conveyed his emotions as the thoughtfulness of a romantic, which he was not, nor the overwrought bigness of an alcoholic, which he also was not. Instead, he showed that he cared with the subtle gestures of a prestidigitator, so small as to be merely experienced out of thin air. Getting that Atari computer, and more specifically my dad giving it to us on Christmas, had become in my mind the proof that I needed that I was okay, that my brother was okay. It would be the absent hug I always wanted from him, wrapped up neatly in a bow and placed under our Christmas tree. It would have proven once and for all that he didn't actually think I would ever end up on Skid Row, that the future was here, and that he believed truly in his heart that I would be part of it. But that was a can kicked down the road for another time. I'd have to live with it, and by the time I finally drifted off to sleep that night, a sense of restful peace came over me. Maybe we could get an Atari computer for our birthday, which was less than a month away. Dreams don't die, I guess. They have a way of morphing and adjusting to the realities of life. I still plan to learn to program a real computer, and I still plan to one day work for Atari, and I still plan to never end up homeless. I just didn't want this dream to die like I saw my mom's acting dreams die. If it did, what would be my solitaire at the kitchen table. What would be the thing I wasted my days away doing because I never got the chance to do what I felt was my destiny to do? Part 5. The morning of Christmas 1983 and the next two weeks are a complete blur in my mind. For how precisely I remember the events that led up to Christmas 1983, the events afterwards live in a state of suspended animation, where all memories seem to rest on top of one another, as if they all happened at the same time. 
Some scientists theorize that time never actually passes, but simply folds over and over onto itself. If there ever was any anecdotal evidence to support this idea, it would be my Christmas 1983. My brother and I awoke that morning, and things were just as my father had said. There was no Atari Integrated Excel computer, and there was no Atari 1050 disk drive. There was no shiny new computer software in elaborately shaped packages or brand new books and manuals for us to read about our new computer. Instead, there was something else entirely. There were two giant old-style 1970s Atari computer boxes, one for an Atari 800 and one for an 810 disk drive. Next to those boxes was another plain brown cardboard box. None of it was wrapped, just hurriedly placed on the table for us to find. My brother and I were in complete shock. Our father had not lied to us. It was true. He could not afford an Atari 800XL, an Atari 1050 disk drive, or brand new computer games. Instead, he got us an old Atari 800? He got the wrong one, I said aloud. I tried to smile, but it was tough. Was this another one of my dad's cheap fake-outs instead of the real thing? Another bargain? Another makeshift way to solve a problem? Another situation that left us behind the times instead of in front of them? I examined the Atari 800 box. It looked fairly new, but the side said it had only 16K of memory. That meant it was a 1979 vintage Atari 800. The new sleeker Atari 800XL had four times as much memory. The 800XL also had the new GTIA graphics chip that was lacking in the original Atari 800 models. Next to the Atari 800 box was a box for the 810 disk drive. The drive was built like a tank, but almost as big as one. The 810 was okay, but it was only single-sided, single-density, so it could only store 90K on a disk. The newer 1050XL drive was a superior enhanced density for more storage. My brother and I had studied enough magazines and heard enough of the space meetings to know how much better the XL computers were supposed to be than the old 400 and 800. However, it was not all bad. The cardboard box behind the Atari boxes appeared to be filled with all kinds of extras, like books and discs. Now that was intriguing. Even though we were both puzzled by the gift, when my dad came out of his room about an hour later, we put on our happy faces and thanked him profusely. Then he told us what happened. He told his buddy at work, Dave Elwood, about the Atari we wanted, and Mr. Elwood informed him that he had one already and he wanted to upgrade to an IBM PC. So Elwood sold him the older model Atari 800 and an older model A10 disk drive and all the software he collected for three years. It was a very good price, my dad said. Yep, a f***ing bargain, I thought to myself. I do not recall anything else at all from that Christmas morning except the building anticipation that I could not wait for all the present opening to complete so I could get to those computer boxes and see if the day could be salvaged. The exact moment the last piece of wrapping paper was thrown into the green trash bag and my dad fired up the Pioneer receiver to put on Christmas music, my brother and I whisked that Atari back to our room to check it out. We approached the computer with trepidation. The boxes were dusty and showed the wear of being in storage for a while. They were a far cry from the brand new shiny Atari XL boxes we saw at Fedco the day before. When we took out the equipment and cables, instead of the fresh smell of new plastic, they had the distinct sweet odor of old leather and cigar smoke. The machines were mostly clean though, and Mr. Elwood had upgraded the memory to 48K and the CTIA chip to a GTIA chip. So that was good. We placed the computer on our makeshift computer desk, hooked it up to our makeshift TV, and never, ever looked back. It turned out, rather unexpectedly, that buying Elwood's secondhand Atari was a brilliant idea. 
In the extra cardboard box came the spoils of Mr. Elwood's own foray into home computing that was now passed on to us. It contained discs and cartridges and joysticks and books and manuals and catalogs. There was so much stuff it was overwhelming. It would take us weeks or even months to discover it all. But with the first couple hours of testing the machine, our excitement built rapidly. In fact, there was something very special about the Atari computer system that my dad got for us. Far from being a poor substitution for a shiny new machine like we feared, it was, quite possibly, the greatest idea my dad ever had. The second-hand Atari 100 was like an instant starter set into the world of home computing. It was honestly the best gift a couple of 13-year-old Atari-obsessed computer twins in 1983 could ever hope for. If we had received a new Atari 800XL, I'm not sure it would have had the same ultimate effect on us. Instead of starting new with just a few programs and games for our computer, we quite literally dove into the middle. With so much available to explore, it felt like an actual gold mine. Like all the listings and descriptions in that HW computer catalog, the one that we read over and over until it fell apart, those had become real, materializing right before our eyes on Christmas morning. My dad had come through. He had finally come through. His bargain hunting and frugal nature, in this case, turned out to be the linchpin. It was the very thing that made the Atari computer he gave us on Christmas 1983 so damned wonderful. We dove into that computer and all the riches it held and did not come up for air until two weeks later when we had to go back to school. We fired up DOS, read through the book Eurotide Computer, and typed in many basic programs. Mr. Elwood collected dozens of games and we tried them all. Every Zork adventure, every Scott Adams adventure, all the Atari-created arcade translations, Star Raiders, and tons of others. We even explored financial programs, graphics demos, the realms of the public domain, and everything in between. Days passed quickly into nights and nights into days. Meals were skipped or forgotten. Bathing was left to the vein. Anything that would take us away from that Atari computer for more than a short time was pushed off as long as possible. The two weeks of vacation felt like a single, long, amazing day. We discovered everything we ever wanted to know about owning our own computer because now we had one in our own room. It was unthinkable. It was unfathomable. Yet there we were. Our hopes had been fulfilled. It was the last pure moment. I ever knew as a child, the joy of complete intellectual and sensory discovery. The computer held the promise as a device that would entertain us as much as we could control it. We could mold it into whatever we wanted or needed. It was seemingly an unlimited tool for playing, learning, and creating. The best part was my dad got it for us, and to me, that meant he must have loved us, right? Even though he never actually said it, his intentions were obvious, and he didn't mention Skid Row for many years after that. Seeing that Atari computer on my computer desk when I woke up the day after Christmas in 1983 and realizing it was real and the dream had been fulfilled was one of the most indescribable feelings of elation I've ever experienced. It was bested only by falling in love with my wife for the first time and having my first child. Decades later, I still feel the same way. The discoveries and life lessons of that Christmas stand out. I look back on that Christmas to remind me of the reasons why I still play games and program computers for a living. There was always the hope of the next great discovery just around the corner. The idea that I will unearth something so engrossing, so intellectually stimulating, that I will dive into its all-encompassing void, only to lift my head up when I found the riches inside. And then I think of my parents. Our love of computers, no matter how much it burned in us, never rubbed off on them. My mom still played analog games of solitaire at the same place at the kitchen table well into her 80s until she could no longer see the cards. She never 
ever, not even once, touched a computer, no matter how hard I tried to get her to do it. My dad did try, but it was not for him. The physical world of his Civil War come French Foreign Legion obsession never abated. He longed to find and understand the vibes he felt for the past. The future honestly did not interest him. My dad still wore a Civil War hat on his head every day until the moment he died in his living room. But none of that stopped us, and none of it would ever make me forget the most important moment of that Christmas day in 1983. The one moment in a blur of memories I recall precisely. It's an image that sticks in my mind and never goes away. It was in the evening time. Darkness had flooded the inside, and as always, the minimal lighting from the sketchy electricity in our house was trying to hold it at bay. My stomach was full of my mom's food, and the house was warm and cozy from the forced air heater, plus the smells of leftovers and French apple pie. Everyone in our house had retired to their happy places. Another Christmas over and in the books. Our family, on their best behavior for a single day out of the year, now allowed to mostly ignore each other for the next 364. In our tiny cramped room, my brother and I sat side by side and booted up that Atari 800, the basic cartridge inside. We tried mostly games in the morning, but now wanted to get serious and try some code. The blue glow of the Atari basic screen lit up our faces in our darkened room. I typed our first basic code from one of Elwood's books and Hello World filled up the screen. Then we edited the program to make our own version. It was just a small change really, but it was our change. All those years of writing code in notebooks and stealing time from friends' computers and the computers in the lab at school were over. The code we wrote was a simple message that said everything. Hello, Steve and Jeff. I'm your Atari computer. Jeff typed run and the message filled the screen. We saved the program to a 90K single-sided, single-density disk on the 810 disk drive so we could keep it forever. And that was it. We had done it. Our plans had worked. We were computer programmers, or at least we had the tools and desire to become computer programmers. I instinctively knew at that moment nothing, and I mean nothing in life, would ever be the same again. The power sat on my desk that day to forge my own destiny. It was an amazing moment when I truly believed with the computer in my hands and a dream in my head, anything was within my grasp. And that's why I believe Christmas 1983, the Atari Computer Christmas, was the best Christmas ever. Jeff, there you go. What did you What did you think about that? You rem- you obviously remember. So that. that's a that's exactly. I think we both felt exactly the same way. Um, one thing we'll note, though, that even if um, even if we had just got the Atari eight hundred XL and the and the um, and the ten fifty disk drive with the built in basic, I was prepared to just figure out how to program basic for two weeks even if we didn't have any games yeah i think what would have happened and i i sort of alluded to that in the story that what would have happened i just think it wouldn't have been as overwhelmingly amazing because what we got from from elwood 
was like a starter kit. Like we got to, we jumped into the middle of someone's computer venture instead of start starting our own. And in some right. ways that was way better. It was way better because we didn't have that. We didn't, we've downloaded some games and we got a few discs from Mike Jackson and other people that we knew who, who had Atari 800s. But we, and we bought a lot of games with whatever money we could scrape together. But we would never have gotten to that point by that time that quickly. No way. So those two weeks would have been us kind of going to the store and maybe picking through whatever we could to possibly get a game here or there that Plus, we could. Elwood had that Atari 800 from almost 1979 or 1980. He bought yeah. it right when it came out. So some of the stuff on those discs was really, really early, like things that most people didn't have later because because they just it just there's like Alibaba and the 40 thieves and stuff like that yeah exactly really Alibaba and the 40 thieves um and you know the, that was i think that's the first game i played all the way through on the Atari hunter was Alibaba and the 40 thieves i remember I was well he also it. had like disc versions of course of the k razy game the k razy shootout yes which i loved i i people say oh it's a bad version of or it's a it's a version of berserk and i'm like yes it's a version of berserk i mean preppy like, we, and preppy 2 were on there right those um, games were great. There was a disc that had anything for Adventure um, International at the time. Yeah, was there was incredible. a di- there was a disc that was like five Atari cartridges that someone had dumped, and it was Pole Position, Donkey Kong. I can't remember exactly what else was on there, but I love those two. And then and then Millipede and then, was on there. You had Asteroids and Centipede. There was yeah, I mean that was. This disc were only ninety k, so the games had to be relatively small. So they were eight. They're all sixteen k games, eight and sixteen k games. games yeah. yeah, Energy Czar and stuff like that. But I mean, you remember, you know, I mentioned in the in the story we we went to HW Computers and found that we got that catalog of all the Atari computer stuff that we we basically read for three almost four years. Um, uh, uh, yeah, exactly, and. Uh, the ability to then play some of those games that were in there, that was also pretty incredible because, you know, we got our Atari VCS in 1981 and it was cool, but it was, you know, I hate to say it because I liked, I liked the Atari and I I think it was neat, but it was, it was disappointing in a lot of ways. It it was too late. We got it too late for, for, for what we were, what we were trying to do. For, for us, especially Well, we were like, we had friends who had, now ColecoVision and someone who had an Intellivision. And there were games on there that, even though there were some things about each one that wasn't quite as good as the Atari, right? Like the the speed of games on until Intel- later yeah. on, on the Intellivision. Intellivision was a little slow. And the ColecoVision, I could tell that things the things were ju- jumped up. It was not so, like some of the games that Brandon had when we, it was later than we were friends with Brandon, we could go over there and play. They but weren't smooth. There was a, a, they weren't smooth. There was some something about the way the it moved. The frame rate on the ClickVision was not great. And yeah. they tried to do every game as a tile-based game, and but I don't think it could push those tiles. It's, and that's why when we had the Atari 800, it was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Because it, every single thing that was wrong with everyone else's game system that we had played was fixed on the Atari 800. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I agree. I absolutely agree, and it also seemed like if you pushed it hard enough and knew enough, you could, you could do anything. Which is not true, but it certainly felt like it. Well, we've seen people. So people have created now games that do not require extra processors and things like that for the Atari Eight Hundred. Now, by now, if the, if it uh-huh. had, 
if James Morgan hadn't done his little thing at Christmas and screwed up, uh, screwed up the computers and let Commodore win, yeah, which, which what he is did, the reason, which I didn't really, I didn't really detail that out in the story, but that uh, is the reason why we, we couldn't get Atari 800 XL um, for Christmas he, he, because they showed up right at like the, the last came day. off the boat on the last week, and yeah. people already people had already purchased all the computers for. Well, the they, basically, year. And, what you said, and, and there I, was, I didn't realize this. But you said like basically Atari did all the advertising for Commodore. Because Atari had tons of computer advertising on TV, but there were no machines in the stores. And Commodore did hardly any advertising. So people go to the store and they find – what do they find there? No Atari, but they find Commodore. No Atari. Now, there were – and they also went – this is the thing. um, Atari were at major department stores like JCPenney, Sears. But they, for some reason, did not want to put their stuff into like Kmart. They were at Gemco. So what happened was and parents Fedco. parents went and they and Fedco, right. Parents who did go to those stores, they either they did one of two things. They saw the Atari commercial or 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 maybe they saw the Commodore commercial. They went in the store. They may have seen an Atari kiosk that had it playing and a Commodore kiosk. And the differences aren't with those games that came out. The games looked at the same that time, or the programs, they looked almost identical. Yeah. So if you're if you're seeing this thing that's available and it's and it's the price point is cheaper, you're gonna take it, right? I mean, and so, arguably and so, the the Atari was a better graphical machine than the Commodore sixty four because of the the vertical bl- the the um what do they call them the interrupts the um the display list interrupts display list right? no sorry. just the, the, display, the display just list. the display list. Um, you could do interrupts on the Commodore 64 and do lots of cool things. I know people got have... to be able to do basically anything the same way, right? And right. the sound exactly. was better, but I mean, in some ways, was better. A lot of deeper, a lot of deeper um, instrument tones on the SID chip. Like, like there's some really nice deep that the Pokey wasn't wasn't a um, wasn't an instrument um, wasn't like an inst- like an instrument rumpler, what do they call it? So I mean, here's the thing I want to the thing I wanted to I don't want to leave with, but I want to just want to say, so for this section. that what was the best thing about that uh, Christmas 1983 was that it was the beginning of everything. Like that Atari 800, we sold four years later to buy our Atari ST, right? Right, and then we sold that Atari ST to get our 1040 ST, and and you know for the next ten years basically. The fact that Dad bought that secondhand Atari 100 for us meant that we could basically funded our education in computers for the next ten years. Right, which exactly. Is, which is when you think about it, it's pretty amazing, right? Like, no, we didn't sell the ST to buy that. Um, no, three, we did. We had jobs at that point. Three eighty six DX forty, which we have to get to at some and, point because yeah, I know. actually really want to have a podcast called three eighty six DX forty. Well, we will. I think part of the vertical out. blank will have a will have a a one that comes through called three eighty six DX forty. Yeah. I, I yeah. just think that 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 time of games when Might Magic three was out and and Wolfenstein and and um. Wing Commander Two and all that, like those are that was a great that was a really great time right before CD-ROMs um, when they were pushing. So our know, our Wing Commander, discs. yeah, exactly. Our Wing Commander Two on the Atari 800 was being able to go and buy that double-sided disc, which I own a copy of now, of um, of F-15 Strike Eagle that had Commodore on one side uh, and Atari on the other. That was and Christmas 1984. 
five, I think. Five. Wasn't eighty four? Eighty four. It could have been eighty four, but but the next Christmas after we got the turner, we got a, a modem, which is a whole other modem, amazing time, world open um, up. Yeah, whole other world opened and up. And I which think is, that is a that's an unexplored part of the vertical blank that I would love. Well, to that's get what to, I think. This is, is what that I'm modem thinking. world I, that opened up. I kind of like. I'm kind of like when we when we start moving on, we should start talking about stuff that happened later. Like we we've spent a lot of time talking about the early days of 2600 and how yeah. we felt about that stuff. But like there's a and the 7800 too. But there's a lot. There's a lot that happened and a lot of cool stuff that goes into the 90s that I think is inter- interesting. Between 84 and and through through the 90s. Yeah, and a lot well, of, so, I mean, a lot of stories if, if you about wanna, interesting things, and I think that's all where we need to go. If you want to talk about hallmark moments, you know, with the Italian hundred that led up to the ST, I mean, Doctor Doctor C Wacko's oh, yeah. book, Troy getting the wants modem. To come and talk to us about that when we're Troy Patterson is oh, Troy does, right. He's my friend at work, and he really wants to come in and talk to us about Doctor C Wacko. So we'll do that as well. So there's a lot of things like that that um, definitely. We can get to in in season three of the vertical blank, but I think we're going to be. I think programming became a big part of it, and I think that's a place that I want to start looking. Well, I at. think that's what I'm I'm alluding to as well here, Jeff. Is that I think I think we've we've only danced around it. I think we need a, a much larger programming component in what we do because we got to get back to that again. We did that for many many years. I mean, even personally, it. even personally, I need it. Yes, Not personally. Just, so- the whole thing, I agree. That's why I'm I'm back working on a 7800 shooter, and I'm going to finish it this time. And, and I'm gonna... working on an I'm working on an ST shooter. I would love for them for the first version to be the same game on the ST as it no. is on the 700. Okay, so then later my, on, oh, that would be great. Here's my idea: I make a 7800 game called Into the Vertical Blank Part One, and you make a you make an ST game called Into the Vertical Blank Part Two. And you play one or the other, and there's some sort of code at the end of one that you put into the other. So the games, basically, you have to play them on both platforms to get the full game. I don't know exactly what that means, but I think that would be a really fun thing to do. That, that would be fun. Yeah. That's what I want to do. So so this is a good season, I think. And I can't wait till next season, coming up in March. Um, and Or I think it's going to be in March. We'll see. That's what we did last year. So... Um, okay, Steve. Let's um. It, for that was a good 2019 and 2020 starts, and we're going to have more episodes coming up. Yeah, I mean, watch some little interim stuff as well. But I think the full yeah. season we're preparing for for next year. I think I got a, a few ideas about what what to do and an upcoming episode about Chris Crawford and some other stuff that I've been working on and that didn't get finished for this year. But we'll do it next. Sounds year. good. Sounds cool. good. All right. Well, Merry Thanks. Christmas, Jeff, and Merry Christmas to everybody out Merry there. Christmas, and, everyone else. And we don't did. forget to review us on on iTunes and like and and send in all your comments. And you know, we well, love to play more stuff on the, the podcast. The so please channel. send anything in you want to. And yeah, we'll um, we'll see you next week. Like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'm trying to grow that. I'm going to have a lot more uh, tutorials. And we did talk a little bit about the Atari ST this time because you're going to get an STE. Didn't have a review or anything, but I'm starting starting up with some more of those videos now. Um, and the first well, video that's the coming end of the up. season, we can't do everything the same. Well, the, exactly. The the, the, um, the first video that's coming up for me that's is going to actually be how to set up Stoss and get it running on a hard drive and do a, a Hello World. And um, that that is that information is really nowhere. It actually is pretty simple, but I didn't know. And it's like I saw people asking, and no one really 
knew how to do it, and I got it set up, and that's going to be the first one. It's going to be a video also. Well, I'm going to do the same thing, Jeff, for 7800 Basic as well. So that's what I'm saying. That stuff is what's going to come out and be more more fully well-rounded next year. Let's get the – we'll get blogs up about it that have the full information, videos that that will have a demo of the whole thing and and point there, and then we'll talk about both together on – an episode that may happen before the season starts. Cool. Like, yeah, that would maybe, be good. So anyway, yeah. Merry Christmas to everybody, and we'll see you next time. All right. Into the vertical blank. We are the Forgotten Generation, a misplaced slice of the 20th century. Food fight. Don't you mean Charlie Chuck's food fight? Charlie Charlie Chuck Charlie 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 Chuck's food fight? Food fight! When birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. When birth rates when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. Inspired by one of our favorite all-time podcasts, This American Life. Taking a cue from Ira Grass's often copied but never duplicated style, we have collected three new stories on a single topic. Going, going, gone. The world must evolve. Under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation. Under the threat of the threat of the threat of nuclear 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 annihilation. 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 The stories this time deal with wanting to work for, or with, or somehow in the realm of classic Atari. We had that dream, as many of you might have also. But you also use the theater of your mind to imagine theater. But you, but you, but you, but, 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 but you also can use the theater of your mind to imagine. So here we go. The top 10 worst real life products for classic video. Asteroids Halloween costume. Furthermore, who in the totally serious, non-ironic 80s would have worn a shirt with the words Video Maniac on it without the same bullies who played asteroids on your face using your new Video Maniac shirt to hang you from the top of the ball cage in the boys' locker room? To the ball, to the ball, to the ball, to the ball, to the ball cage in the boys' locker room. Playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. Season 2. Episode 5. Electronic Games Magazine. Into the Purple And I just wanted to get started by saying that Electronic Games Magazine, to me, was the golden age of video games. The golden age of video games. We collect why we, we collect, and the type of stuff that we've decided we want to collect for Atari right now. Fulton Bot's Atari VCS Quest. Memories of the proper vintage. We are the second half of Generation X. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by New Wave, Imperfect Punk Rock, and John Hughes movies. Emits a shower of sparks. Shower, shower, shower of sparks. Emits a shower of sparks. How we stopped playing soccer and started playing Atari. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. 
This is a story entitled, The Exact Moment Nintendo Won the Video Game War. I hope you enjoy it. The exact moment Nintendo won the video game war, February 12th, 1985. An article in the second to last issue of Electronic Games Magazine, entitled Nintendo's Final Solution. Known for arcade classics like Donkey Kong and Punch-Out in the U.S., Nintendo has built its reputation in Japan as the leading manufacturer of home video game systems with its Advanced Video Entertainment System, AVS. Season 2, Episode 9 of Into the Vertical Blank, Generation Atari. This episode is entitled, Dragonstone. Into the Vertical Blank. Hey Steve, how's it going? It's going okay. Hey Steve, how's it going? So, I think anything pre-Windows 95 is in the vertical plane. I'm just, I'm just going out on a limb and saying that. So the Arcadia Corporation was making joysticks and stuff like these. I remember the joysticks, they sort of had this round dome on top. I just think that we, when we were looking through electronic, because everything, our entire world was electronic. Thank you. And that was our entire fandom where we got all of our... Remember that we didn't even have too many of the original games until way later because we only wanted the new advanced games from Activision and Abagic and others. Oh, we picked up most of the older games at Target for like two, a dollar a piece. Yeah. yeah, or even Kmart. Remember, it's getting like. Space War, you know, for a dollar or something at Kmart, we just want to play. We wanted the newest, we basically, I think we bought, we got our Tarvius, we wanted mostly Activision games. We did. When you saw the box art and the uh, screenshots or screen art in Electronic Games Magazine, you're like, oh my god, like that's amazing, that makes Atari's games kind of look crappy. We actually went out of our way, whenever we'd avoid the ugly ones and went for ones we knew were on the computer, hoping they would be as good, like Marauder. I think we're kind of disappointed by Marauder, but I go back. value play-wise, but when you look at how it was coded, the way the guys chased Oh, I'm sure the coded amazingly. Yeah. Just nothing had any depth, and I think we were looking for depth, and so just the box art, I mean, the most depth we could even imagine was looking at the box art on a for a game and wondering what it could be, and anything that looked like it was a fantasy adventure game, we're like, oh my god, maybe that's like Dungeons and Dragons, which we had right. started playing at school with our friends. I remember in like 82 or early 83, seeing the box for Ultima 2 for the Atari 800 at the warehouse. And I think Ultima 2 was the one that came up from Sierra. I think Sierra released that one. It was one of the only Ultimas that Sierra made. And the back of the box, the description was like, sounded like the most amazing in-depth like game you could ever play. And I was just salivating. And that compared with playing like 
I don't know, basketball in the 2600 just depressed me to no end. Like, I felt like we were never going to get to the point where we could play real games. I don't know. slice of the 20th century when birth rates were as low as expectations for the future. We lived under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation, playing outside, but always inherently knowing the future was indoors. We are the second half of Generation X. We were some of the first to play video games, program home computers, and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our generation was nourished by new wave, imperfect punk rock, and John Hughes movies. We built Web 1.0 from the ground up using our childhood 8-bit and 16-bit programming skills. They call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines, because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. So, um... Last weekend, one of my kids asked my wife to drive by their grandparents' house, which is my old house and Jeff's old house, where all the most, all of the Into the Vertical Blank stories take place that we had to sell in early 2018. You know, my mom, our mom passed away. So my wife drove by and she said that they were both really excited to see a couple of little boys playing in the yard. Um, it's not really a yard, it's like a front area, because what they've done is they've constructed a giant mega mansion on what was a single-family house space from the 50s. But there were still two little boys there. And my wife came home, and she waited a couple days, and then she said, Steve, I wanted to tell you that we drove by and I thought you might like to know that on the same spot where your house was, there were two little boys playing. And my wife was right. I was very happy to hear that there were two kids playing in that same space. Computers and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our CD, 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 to cassette mixtapes. Our computers and record CDs to cassette mixtapes. Our CD, 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 to cassette mixtapes. Our We are Generation Atari. We are Generation Atari. We are Generation Atari. Generation Atari. Generation Atari. Generation Atari. Generation Atari. Generation Atari. We call us Gen X. We prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines, because that's where we live, love, and thrive. 
vibrators and players alike will feel the force. The force of a powerful new video game with graphic simulation that is a visual assault on the imagination. Star Wars moves beyond the realm of a game and into a complete coin video experience. Hey Jeff, it's a, it's a Halloween. We've never done a Halloween episode. We haven't, because Halloween scares me. Hey Jeff. Hey Steve, how's it going? It's the 40th anniversary of Asteroids this month. The 40th anniversary of Asteroids. The Asteroids. The Asteroids. The Asteroids. The Asteroids. The Asteroids. 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 The 40th anniversary of Asteroids this month. The Asteroids coin up. Oh my god. I know. 40 years! 40 The Atari 800 was our adolescence of computer ownership. The Atari ST was our coming of age in the realm of computers. We played tons of games on the system, but also made movies with it, did all of our college coursework on one, game development, and much, much more. Gen X, we prefer the vertical blank generation, where magic happens between the lines, because that's where we live, love, and thrive. We are Generation Atari. Into the vertical blank. Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.